0: Lord, we have waited on you this morning because we know that we, um, we don't have anything to bring and you supply us with all that we require. And Lord, you've met with us, you've encouraged us and Lord, we continue to look to you now as you speak to us through your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, why you have a look to Genesis chapter 12. And uh, we're going to sort of try and move through a bit of an overview of Abram's life. Abram, uh, as he began his story in Genesis 11, uh, we find out he was named Abram, no no ham, uh, that's why Jews don't like eating ham. Um, no, that's not the truth at all. Um, Abram, and later on God changed his name, uh, but his story his story really picks up in Genesis 11 and then all the way through probably um, quite a number of chapters past Genesis 20. And then, of course, all the way through the rest of scriptures, uh, Abraham just keeps showing up. He's a very significant uh, character. So we're just going to sort of pick up a few a few things about his life that I think are going to be helpful for us to focus on this morning. He, he's actually the most referenced character of the Old Testament by the writers of the New Testament. So when the the writers of the New Testament sit down and under God's inspiration are writing out their letters to the churches and reflections on the Gospels, the the most referenced Old Testament character is Abraham, and for good reason. He's not only the official father of the Jewish race, so any Israelite, any uh, Jew, are able to trace their family tree back all the way through the generations and will eventually find themselves as a part of Abraham's family. But Paul, the writer of the New, in the New Testament, he argues that Abraham was not only the father of the Jewish race, but he's in fact the father to all those of us of faith. So if you this morning have faith in Jesus Christ, if you this morning have seen Jesus as wonderful and as a saviour of your soul and you've submitted your life to him, Paul argues your father is Abraham in that sense of the father of your faith. Uh, It would seem that that, thanks Tim, very annoying old Sunday school song was right. Okay? Father Abraham, I'm not going to sing it, had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you, so let's all just praise the Lord. I don't know what the go is with the whole right arm business. I mean, the rest of the song complete sounds completely and it's utter nonsense, really, but at least at least the chorus is good, all right? Um, Maybe that's why we repeat choruses so much. They're the best parts. Look, apart from that song, I've got two two observations that I really want you to take note of, particularly from Abram's life, his story, that will help us build a road forward towards Jesus. That's what's happening in the Old Testament. It's preparing the foundations, preparing a road which is going to lead us to the cross and beyond going to lead us to Jesus. Um, There are foundations in Abram's story which are so significant to help us understand what grace looks like as it comes to us in the gospel. And so here are just two things that we're going to reflect on this morning, just two big things and then we'll sort of just take them each bit by bit. The first thing that I want you to notice and think about with Abram's story is that Abram's story is a story primarily of faithful waiting. Abraham's story is a story about faithful waiting. That's the first thing we want to reflect on. The second thing is this. Abraham's story proves that righteousness really does come by faith and not by perfection. Okay, so the first thing we want to think about Abraham's story is primarily a story about faithful waiting. How do we think about that? Does it inform what we do as Christians today? Should we be considering how we faithfully wait? Yes. And secondly, the story is about the fact that righteousness really does actually come through faith and not perfection, and that should be good news to us. All right, so let's just take those sort of bit by bit. Faithful waiting. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, Sarai, as she was first known, Abraham and Sarah were not only the parents, as I said, of all of God's children, but also all of their faith children. You can go and have a look at Romans 4 and 16 if you wanted to, to see that Paul is saying, hey, he is the, he's the father of us all. Whether you call yourself a Jew or a Gentile believer, Abraham is the father of us all. And their lives are probably... Um, one of the most famous pictures, I think, of God's uh, redemptive purposes, the way that God redeems and rescues and his purposes attached to that in what seems like, in Abraham's story, a painfully slow pace. Most of us battle with this, right? We think God is at work in some way or we want God to be at work in a certain way, but we want it when? now all right but much of abraham's story in fact much of the story of the bible is actually about faithful waiting it's about looking forward to and not holding now and that teaches us a really important lesson so let's just do a little bit of a, a recap and sort of catch up on over an overview of abram's life abram as he was first called was already 75 years old when God promised to make him a great nation that would bless all the families of the earth and to give his offspring the land of the Canaanites. Okay, In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you can look there, have your Bible open, check me. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was 75 years old when God gave him that first insight into the covenant that he would make with him. Even the promised land was something that he never saw realized in his lifetime. Yet he believed and lived in light of that promise. I mean, he was 75 years old when he first heard God say that to him. There was a problem, of course, wasn't there? Abram had no offspring, no children. We find out as we continue reading, Sarah was what? Barren. In fact, you can read that in Genesis 11, just a few verses before where we just read. Sarah was barren, had no children. Not only were they 70, Abram was 75 years old and no children, there wasn't actually physically or logically any prospect of having children. And yet here's God saying, Abram, I want you to leave where you are. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a great family, a great offspring. But years passed, and there was still no child, right? So Abram, he's very prudent. He's a smart guy. He, he plans to make his servant his sort of main two I see in the family that kept things going when Abram wasn't there or couldn't do something. His name was Eliezer. At one stage, God God and Abram are talking about this problem of having no children, no offspring, and yet God's promise had been given. And so Abram says to him, listen, yep, no worries, God, I I get it. You're going to make your name great. You're going to give me a family. So what I've done about that is that I've ensured that Eliezer, my servant, is going to be my benefactor, so that when I die, my name and my goods and my blessing will pass on through Eleazar. God said, this man shall not be your heir. He won't be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. It's in Genesis 15 and 4, if you want to check it. And then he took Abram outside. Now, you might know this part of the story, right? He's in his tent. He's having a conversation with God. Yeah, God, I get it. Eliezer will be my heir. God says, no, no, you don't get it. Eliezer won't be your heir. I'm going to give you a son, your very own son. So step outside the tent, Abram. I'm going to give you a picture of this. Look up into the night sky. You know this part of the story? Looks up into the night sky. Abram, can you count the stars? It's a rhetorical question. God already knew the answer. I mean if you if you heard the conversation that God had with Job yeah, he, he really let Job know job you don't really know what you're talking about okay this time he's much kinder he says to abram give it a go count them I, I can just imagine abram sort of going well, where, where do i start 1 2 did i count that one already and 3 he go who can count the stars right who can do that and then God makes this preposterous comment. It's just unbelievable to our minds. Abram, your offspring, your offspring will be so numerous, it would be like counting the stars. I believe he was speaking in into the situation that we find ourselves now, where we are children of Abraham, children of faith. And God was saying to him that day, listen, don't, don't just rely on your physical way, your logical way of trying to figure this out, Abram. Eliezer won't be your, your heir. I will give you an heir. Not only will I give you an heir, but look up into the sky. I'm going to give you so many heirs that you can't count them. But years later, it was still only Abram and Sarah living in that same tent. So Sarah becomes quite desperate and she gave up on waiting. She decided that her servant, now Abram had a servant, Eliezer. He was going to be the heir, remember? God said, no, not a good idea. I'll give you an heir. Well, Sarah also had a servant, a maid servant. Her name was Hagar. Sarah comes up with a plan. It's well thought through from her end. She looks at herself and she says, there's no way in the world I'm going to be a hub of be able to have a child i can't this is not humanly possible it's logically inconceivable and she knew the meaning of that word and so she says to abram abram i've got i want to have a a chat normally when our wives man you know this right can we chat that's gonna either go in two directions all right. In my situation, I get, "Hey, hun, I've been thinking. We need to talk." It's like, "Oh, radio. This is either about me moving furniture around for the tenth time, or there's something really going on that we need to sort of sit down and talk through." Right? Sarah says, "Abraham, we need to have a chat. I've come up with a plan. I want you to sleep with my maidservant." I have no idea how much of the rest of the conversation Abram heard. <laughs> I mean, it really, it could have just been sort of sitting there chatting with his wife, blah, 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 blah. Can you sleep with my maidservant? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know what was going through his head at the time. I do know at the end of it, he just went, that's a great idea. <laughs> the, the plan was not to sort of just you know, get involved in polygamy or anything, it was um, a practice that was not unusual in the ancient world where a wife who couldn't bear a child would have a surrogate mother to bear that child for her but that child would bear all the rights and the names of the actual parents who should have been able to give birth. I mean, this sounded humanly reasonable when you're 86 years old. That's how old Abraham was by now. Remember, 75 years old, and God says, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you an inheritance. He was 75. Now he's 86. 11 years has passed, and God has done nothing to fulfill his promise. And there is no chance on the horizon that God is going to fulfill his promise. And so Abram says okay we'll try it this way. He didn't consult with God on it. He he followed whether it's Sarah's fault or not it's not really the point. The point is that together they said we can't see how God can do this so that so we will make this happen, right? We can't see how God will supply the answer, so we will make that happen. And before we get too judgmental, haven't we all been sort of in that boat at some point in our life? I'm not sure how God's going to come through on this, so I need to figure this out myself. I'm not sure how God is going to supply my needs in this situation, so I better work this out myself. And that's where Abram and Sarah find themselves. Well, of course, the solution backfires and it backfires big time. Abram does conceive a son with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And the world is still in turmoil because of that decision. It backfired. Thirteen more years pass. Seventy-five. Someone be doing the maths in the head. I'm terrible at maths. Seventy-five. 86, 13 more years passed. How old is he now? 99 years old. How many years have passed since the first promise at 75 and 99? How many years? 24. 24 years. Can you imagine that? 24 years holding on to a promise and seeing nothing. a 99-year-old Abram and an 89-year-old Sarah would bear a son. And God changes their name from Abram and Sarai to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and Sarah, which means princess. A year after that, moment where God visits them and says to Sarah, in one, one year's time, you'll have a son. And to the day, a year later, Isaac is born. Until they held that baby in their hands, they had been waiting 25 years. 25 years of holding on to a promise and waiting for God to show up. And there was no earthly reason to really hope. I mean, their their chance of having a baby went from highly unlikely to impossible. 99 years old with a barren wife. We look at that, right, and go, well, that's impossible. But good for us is that's where God works best. Their only hope was God's promise. There wasn't another way that this was going to happen. And I think that is precisely God's purpose in their long and confusing wait. There is so often where we sort of wonder, don't we? Is this really of God or did I make this happen? Abram never wondered that. Abram never got to the point where he looked back on that moment, maybe, and sort of went, well, gee, I wonder if I just sort of made that happen. There was no possible way that anyone could look back at that situation and say, well, Abram and Sarah worked that out. This was of God. So in Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, I'll read it to you. This is what Paul says to the church in Rome and to us today. He says, no unbelief made Abram waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, you may have questions in your mind because you're like, well, really? Because sleeping with the maid didn't sound like fully convinced. Well, we're going to get to that part. But this is what Paul says... He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God determined that all of his true children would be born again through faith to a living hope. God determined that all his children would be born again through faith to a living hope. And that's what it means. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That when God speaks and that when God says, this is who I am, that his children would say, it doesn't look possible, but I'm fully convinced that you are able to do it, God. That's what faith is. Or when Peter writes his letter to the churches in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what a living hope means. A living hope is that sense of just saying, you know what, I can't see how this is possible. I can't see how God could do this, but God said it and I am fully convinced that he's able to. And then... We live by faith. We're not only saved through faith, but we live by faith, just like Abram does. Paul says when he writes to the church in uh, Galatia, the Galatians letter, chapter 3 and verse 7 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Faith, even though it might be as small as a little mustard seed, right? We know that faith can do big things, but faith is rooted, faith is found first in a people who say, I don't understand how this is possible, but I believe God. If God said it, I'm pinning my hope on that because I know he's able. And Paul's making the point, that's what Abram did, and anyone who else who does that, we're sons of Abraham who share the same type of faith. Because we share it in the, the promise of God, and the promise of God alone. Or in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, when Paul opens up that letter to the church in Rome, he said, it is, For it is in the righteousness of God, revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith isn't the only thing that we hold on to when it comes to saying, hey, it's all just about what happened on the day of my salvation. Paul is saying, no, your whole walk with Jesus is a walk of faith. And so I think God took patient pains to try and cultivate it in Abram and Sarah. And he does the same for us. God also knows that we are impatient waiters. Right? That's just, we pray for patience all the time. I do. Oh, Lord, give me patience. Because we are impatient waiters. And God knows that. He calls us to wait on him. Just trust me. And yet, he provides us with the very means we need to wait well. Abram waited well. That's why he's the father of our faith. And God is calling us to wait well. He gives us stories like Abram and Sarah's to serve as an example to us, to give us teaching on that, to help us see that our waiting is not in vain. But do you know that he gives us songs to sing while we wait? One of them is Psalm 13. It's one of my favorite psalms. If you want to turn your Bibles to it, just leave your fingers sort of in Genesis. But go and have a look at Psalm 13. Read just a part of it. But I encourage you, go home and read it with your family. Read it with your spouse or uh, read it to your neighbor. They'll probably think it's weird, but it's a good place to start. Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? Already I relate to this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light. Up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Everything up until verse 5 is is our heart crying out to God saying, God, how long? How long does it have to be like this? How long do I suffer like this? How long do I see people who seem to be prospering and they're evil people? How long, Lord? And there's this whole sort of tone of waiting, right? But this is a song to sing while we wait. This is a song that we can cry out to God while we wait. And so he says, but I have trusted in your what? Your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. It will. I will sing to the Lord. I will. Here's the faithful waiting part, right? This is my circumstance. How long, O Lord? And this is the declaration. I trust you. I will sing. I will rejoice. Your love is steadfast. It will come true. It is sure. And so he gives us songs to sing while we wait. And we know that God is worth the wait, right? He's worth the wait. So 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow. And we're like, well, he kind of is. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, and Peter comes through for us, he says, as some count slowness. What Peter's saying is that we like to define our own terms when it comes to time. I mean, I, I can say to my kids, hey, you need to get up and you need to do your hair. Not looking at anyone in particular. You, know, you, need, to get, you need to do something Now. And then I turn around, I give them ample time to do it, like three, four seconds, right? Why are you so slow? Now, I just define the terms, right? I just turned three or four seconds into a term of slow. I expected it done now. But I tell you what, if I ever run... Well, let's be honest, that's not going to happen. Let's say somebody else who likes running actually ran somewhere in three to four seconds. We would say that's fast. All right? Wow, that was fast. But when it comes to seeing my kids' obedience, that's slow. We count slowness and fastness when it suits us. We define slow and fast. We define time around what, what suits our agenda. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. I think Peter's winking at me then, you know, as some. It's you, mate. (laughs) As Chris counts slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord's not slow. What, What Peter calls patience in his letter, Paul calls kindness when he writes it, it means waiting on God is often an evidence of his kindness towards us. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance. Often our time of waiting is God's kindness towards us. We want God to do it now, and God knows it would be terrible for you to do it now. And God is kind to us often in our waiting. Knowing that that kindness is actually meant to take us to a place of, what? Repentance before Him. God is worth waiting for. One of my other favorite verses from Isaiah, Isaiah 64 and verse 4 says this, From of old, you might recognize the verse, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God beside you, whom acts, who acts for those who wait for him. We're waiting, expecting God to show up in a certain way, and God says, you have no idea how amazing it's going to be. I want God to act in my definition. I want God to act in my definition of time. I want Him to act in a certain way, and I'm going to define that, and God just says, listen, you can't even imagine what it's going to be like when I show up for this. And God's promises are for those who wait. God's promises are for those who wait. Isaiah 40. This one, some of you know very well. Some of you will be at least familiar with. Isaiah 40, 29 through 31. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who, what? Wait for the Lord. Shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run not be weary they shall walk and not faint did you hear who that promises for for those that wait for those that wait now here's what i said we're going to finish with one of the dangers of holding up a story like abraham's as an example of faithful waiting is that we could fall into the trap of thinking that God blessed or credited righteousness to Abraham, that's what Paul says in Galatians, that God blessed Abraham due to the fact that he was so good at it. Abraham, you're so good at waiting. I'm terrible at waiting. Of course God was going to bless him. We think that Abraham is the model of perfection. And that's the reason why he's the father of our faith. But that couldn't be the further from the truth. In that sense, Abraham could be seen as a disappointing hero of the faith. But he's not. In fact, he's the opposite. I want you just to consider a couple of events. We've, we've already highlighted one. And that was the situation when Abraham sort of thought, you know, Sarah, you've come up with a fantastic idea. And um, we will sort this out, and we'll do it our way. And uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, that's that's one occasion where we should look at Abraham and sort of go, man, he, he didn't get that whole waiting thing on God very well, did he? But there are plenty more in this story. L- listen to these ones: Genesis chapter twelve, verses ten. You can have a look at it. Um, I'll just highlight a small part out of this at this part of the story. Um, Abram is gone and gone to the land that God had shown him in Cana, and he didn't belong to that land. He's a sojourner there, which means he was a wanderer, like a Bedouin. Um, He didn't have a place that was ancestrally his. He had nowhere to put his flocks, so he just wandered. Now, there was a famine in the land, verse 10 says of chapter 12. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sarah, his wife, "Listen, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. Hey, what a charmer! Men start every conversation like that. You know, you're wanting something, and and just start with that. That's your leading line. Listen, oh, beautiful wife, you are a stunner, unbelievable, charming. But that's that's his high point. It just goes down after that." He says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is Abram's wife. He knew the Egyptians weren't stupid. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Tell them you're my sister. That it may go well with me because of you. Hey, what a charmer. My life may be spared for your sake. Now just think of the the implications of this for a moment. Some guy sees Abram and Sarah walking into the Egyptian land and he says she is a beautiful woman. Are you guys together? Abram quickly sort of you know, little nudge to the wife Sarah goes no, I'm his sister. Good, you're not taken then. You'll be my wife. Takes Sarah. You know, I mean, potentially, that's what could have happened. Abram was willing to basically sell his wife off to some other man to to let her live as his wife so that he would live. Completely self-centered in it. Not charming at all. He's thinking about his life. Hey, ladies, that'd be a catch, wouldn't it? A guy that starts every conversation with, you're so beautiful, I'm going to buy you flowers, but in fact the relationship is all about him? Men wouldn't be like that, would they? Hey, just so I don't die, I'm going to pretend that you're my sister, is that okay? And then you go be the wife of somebody else for a bit, and we'll try and figure it out later, all good? That's, that's what Abram says. Then, of course, there was the whole situation with Sarah and Abram trying to work out God's promises in Genesis chapter 16. Abram seemed pretty keen to get involved with that little scheme. That's not so great. Now, of course, he would have learnt his lesson. Uh, In Egypt, when Abram went down there... In fact, it wasn 't just any guy that saw Sarah that was beautiful. it was actually the King of Egypt. The King of Egypt saw Sarah and said, "Man, she is beautiful. Are you guys together? No, 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 she 's just my sister. you know I might don't hurt me and um, plagues plagues come on Egypt, and the king of Egypt says, "Hang on, somehow he figures out God reveals to him in a vision. this is not this is not." Abram's sister, this is Abram's wife this is a terrible thing that I've done and so he says lucky I I haven't slept with her yet you go back to Abram and and both of you leave, we don't want you in our country, now of course Abram's learned his lesson from that, he's never going to do that again right? no no he does it again Genesis chapter 20 verse 1 Abram's journeying towards the territory of the Negev, which is a, a sort of a desert area between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gira. And Abram said of his wife, this is Genesis 20, verses 1 to 3. Abram said of Sarah, his wife, look, she's my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gera, sent and took Sarah. And the same thing, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman that you've taken, for she's a man's wife. And skip forward down to verse 8. Abimelech comes back to Abram and says, Listen, why have you done this? Why did you lie? How have I sinned against you, he says. Abimelech said to Abram, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abram said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abram's still concerned with his own life, his own security. Not only did Abram pass his wife as his sister once to save his own neck, he did it twice. What a man. But here's why this is so encouraging I'm no better. Now, I haven't passed my wife as my sister. But I'm no better. I'm no better than Abram. Isn't it easy to point our fingers at the failings of others? Even great people of the Bible. But these stories act as a mirror to our own soul, to our own intentions, to our own desires. Abram might be selfish and self-serving, but so am I. Even more so. Abram might be manipulative and scheming, but so am I, even more so. Abram might not have learnt from his errors and even repeated them, but so have I. All the time. And that's why his story is encouraging to me, and it should be for you. Abram's perfection was not the means through which he received his commendation from God. It wasn't because Abraham was so good at it that he got everything right, that he was such a great man of God that God said to him, okay, I'm going to bless you. His faith came in spite of his failings. And it's the same for us. I mean, Abraham's listed in that great chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place. By faith, he believed God that he would give him an heir. By faith. And we can look at Abram's life and we say, but he was a failure in so many ways. And God says, yes, that's the point. His perfection didn't earn him faith. And your perfection doesn't either. So does mine. Our perfection doesn't earn us faith. And that's brilliantly good news for us. Abram's story is one about learning to wait well, but not perfectly. It's a story about a righteousness that comes through faith, not perfection. Which means it's a story about the gospel. It's a story of good news. Righteousness comes to those who are willing to hear what God says and believe it. Despite what the circumstances around us say. And even in our failings and even in our fallings and even in our stumblings that would simply keep giving our eyes and lifting our eyes and saying, I trust the God who gives me hope. I trust the one who died for my sins. I trust the one who says I'm coming again. I trust the one that I have been made an heir of Christ with Christ under God. And so we're called now to be children of Abram. We are many sons and daughters. And if you want to get up and sing the song and do your right hand, left hand, that's fine. But I want you to hear this morning. Abraham he waited well, though he waited imperfectly. And he was able to say, I hold unswervingly to the fact that God will come through. He's calling us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for our father, Abram. Thank you that we of faith can be counted as sons and daughters of his. Even as he failed, even as he um, was far from perfect, so are we. And yet you have offered us and given us faith as we come to you in repentance. As we come and own our failings and our sin. And we call out to you and say, God, we trust you. We trust everything that you have said. We trust that there is salvation in no other. And we hold to that. And though our circumstances seek to sort of try and distract our attention and turn our eyes to other things, Lord, help us to be people of faith who cling to you. We're weak. And so we thank you for the gift of the Spirit who strengthens us and has sealed us ready for what you have promised us. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.